Oh, very good. We are in a summer Psalms series. We do this every summer where we dig into the Psalms. They're so helpful. They touch all aspects of life. They're really a synopsis of the whole Bible. They can teach us how to pray. They touch all areas of our lives. And today we are going to be looking at Psalm 2. So open your Bibles or your Bible app to the book of Psalms. If you have a printed version, it's a little before the middle of your Bible. And we're going to be looking, reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. It says this, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is quite a psalm. Together with Psalm 1, Psalm 2 is the intro to the entire book. And this psalm delves into the grandest of themes. It provides clarity regarding who we are as humans, clarity regarding God and His King, and it talks about a path to peace. Psalm 2 makes it clear that this world offers us no hope, but there is a place to find refuge. And as we dig into the psalm this morning, it's going to answer four fundamental questions. Who are we? Who is God? Who is God's anointed? And in light of all that, what are we to do? These questions are answered in our passage, and will be the four points. 
we will be looking at, if you're taking notes. As we begin, we need God to illumine our minds and hearts. I need His help, so let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that You would use Your Word to show us this world for what it is. Open our eyes to understand who we really are and the vanity of our ways. Help us see You and Your character. Show us Your King and His holiness, justice, and power. Draw us to Jesus, Your Son, who invites us to come to Him by His grace. We pray all these things in Your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title for the sermon today is Take Refuge in Him. Refuge is a wonderful thing. We had a hurricane last week which ended up not needing much refuge, but when I think about refuge, I, I see pictures of the Florida hurricanes where the winds are whipping and you see pieces of roof flying through the air. And if you're out there, you're going to die. You need a place to be sheltered. And that's what refuge is. It's being safe in the midst of trouble, being sheltered from danger, being at rest in the midst of chaos. And in a world full of trouble, among humanity at odds with God, there is one way to be safe, sheltered, and at peace. And Psalm 2 gives the answer. So let's dig in. The first point in our passage answers the question, who are we? Who are we? Psalm 2 describes humanity in three simple words. The nation's rage. The nation's rage. That's our first point. Look at verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Many people who analyze our culture today have been saying that we're, we live in the age of rage. And, and it may be true that people seem to be angrier today than they were years ago. But rage is nothing new. Verse 1 makes it clear that rage is just what humans do. It has always defined us. Rage implies anger, being in a frenzy. It's, it's noisy, violent, and erratic. It's really a kind of madness. But why are we like this? Verse 2 makes it clear that we did this to ourselves. Rage comes from fighting against God. We entered into madness when our leaders, and with them all of us, we set ourselves and we took counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one. This goes all the way back to Eden and the fall. 
If you recall, our, our parents, Adam and Eve, chose to set themselves against God and His wise instruction for them. Instead of trusting the Lord's counsel, they took counsel from the serpent, Satan, the enemy of our souls. They then took counsel together and basically said, I don't think I, God knows what He's talking about. I don't think His instructions are good for us. It's not working. I don't think we should trust Him. That's how it started, and that's exactly how it continues today. We all set ourselves against God and instead choose to be in league with the world and its ways, to follow our own fleshly ideas. We listen to the devil and each other rather than God. Our rage comes from seeking to be independent of God. Verse 3 shows that instead of understanding God's instruction as the wisdom of a loving father, it's like we're viewing it as the restrictions of a tyrant. So let's burst the bonds. With that, we treat him as an enemy. We seek to burst what we perceive to be bonds of his authority and holiness. We want to blow it apart. We want to cast away these supposed cords, thinking it will bring us satisfaction and freedom. But does it? I think it's pretty easy just to reflect the chaotic rage that defines humanity now and always, the ongoing madness we see in the world, the deep dissatisfaction in your own soul shows that it does not. Cutting our dependence on God only leaves us adrift. Like a drowning man cutting the lifeline thrown out from a boat, we have spelled our own doom. Now we're on our own, left to contend with roaring seas and chaos, with no help, and with nothing but death coming. As Romans, Romans 1 so aptly describes it, when, when we did not honor God as the good Father He is, when we didn't give thanks to Him, we pulled away from Him, we became futile in our thinking, and our hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. And what's, what's the end of all our raging? Verse 1 makes it clear. It's all in vain. No matter how passionate your feelings, how supposedly reasoned our philosophies, how coordinated our opposition, all of our contention with God is vain. It has no good effect. It's useless. It results in nothing. Our raging does us no good. It leaves us cut off from God. And having set ourselves against God, we're left alone in our confusion and frustration with no hope. So who are we as humanity? 
We're foolish. We're fallen. We've set ourselves adrift. We're left angry, lost in a sea of confusion, and in desperate danger. So how about you? Are you aware of the rage all around? Have you felt rage in your own soul? Might you be trying to burst the bonds of God's presence in your life? As you strive for this supposed freedom, are you sinking into greater misery? Could it be that you're looking for hope where none can be found? While humanity rages, what's God doing? Who is God? That question is answered in our second point. The Lord laughs. The Lord laughs, our second point. Look at, look at verses 4 to 6. While all this is raging is going on, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These these verses make it clear that God has no rival. In the face of man's hatred for Him, our coordinated rebellion, our, our alliance with Satan, our striving for independence, the Lord simply laughs. And this is not the laugh of one amused, nor is it the evil laugh of a cruel villain. This is the laugh of one who sits above the cesspool of our own making. It's the laugh of one transcendent and holy, the laugh of one mocking our futile thoughts and foolish defiance. All of our bluster doesn't threaten Him. All of our efforts don't weaken Him. Our opinions don't diminish Him one bit. On the contrary, our rebellion and frustration works to highlight and demonstrate His absolute holiness and unassailable peace. His holiness can't abide the evil of our sin and stands immovable against our rebellion and raging. But His peace is not disturbed by our frenzy. In response to our opposition, God speaks in His wrath, terrifies in His fury. And this is fascinating. What terrifies us? Look at verses 5 and 6 again. He will speak to them in His wrath, terrify them in His fury, saying this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The terror comes when God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why is this terrifying? Well, well, to people who are raging at God, fighting against Him, stained with sin, 
if there is one who represents God, his king, who is holy, utterly perfect, altogether different, and with the full authority of kingship, that's more than unsettling. God's holiness confronts our raging. It exposes our darkness. It shines a light on our failure. It lays us bare. And in contrast to our impotence, this king has full power. Even more, this holy one has been set by God on Zion, on earth. God's representative is set to live among us. He's right there. Having a holy, all-seeing, all-powerful judge living next door is terrifying for one who has done wrong. That's what strikes terror. So what do you think about God? Do you know that He's present and active everywhere now? Do you understand that He knows your every thought? He sees everything we do? Do you realize that He's altogether holy and all-powerful? Are you threatened or comforted by that reality? And that brings us to the third question and our third point. Who is this anointed one? Psalms, Psalm 2 says it's his king, his son. And that the son reigns. That's our third point. The son reigns. Look at verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It speaks of the Lord and His anointed. Kings are anointed when they are crowned. My family and I went last September to England, and we stood before the coronation chair. And if, if you watched King Charles be crowned not long ago, that was used there. In coronations of kings, they are anointed with oil. And it's the most sacred part of the ceremony. For the British monarchs, it is so sacred that they place barriers around the chair so that no guest can witness it. No one ever has. In all the history of kings of Britain, no one has ever seen that except for the king and the priest. It's hidden from view. Anointing was true for the kings of Israel, and this psalm was likely used on those occasions. But just as anointing has this deep and profound mystery, 
This psalm means much more than just the placement of a common king of Israel. Like all those that came through, many of them not very kingly, not very holy. Or King Charles in England. He's not that well loved, by the way. Uh, People weren't that excited about this coronation, I have to tell you. Here, though, God is speaking to this king, and we hear this king's own voice. So who is this anointed one of Psalm 2? Verse 7 speaks of a king who is decreed, which means by God's authoritative order, he's decreed to a place of distinct honor, being called God's son. It says that this one was begotten by God. It goes on to declare that this one, God will give the nations, the peoples as His heritage. That's an inheritance that can only be given from a father to a son by reason of birthright. Even more, the whole earth will be made the son's possession. This is unparalleled authority. King Charles certainly doesn't have it. The kings of Israel didn't have that kind of authority. And if that were not enough, this king, this son, has the right and the power to execute judgment. Verse 9 declares he will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Humanity's rebellion, independence, and sin will not stand. This is a warrior king who will end all of our ongoing rage, opposition, and chaos. What an amazing description. What a list of titles. Is there anyone who fits such a description? Amazingly, yes. Listen to these references to Psalm 2 from these verses in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Matthew, it says that a voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved Son. God's voice first declared this when Jesus was baptized. The second time was when Jesus transformed before Peter, James, and John, shining like the sun. And interestingly, they responded in terror. Paul understood also, Paul understood Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. He quotes it in Acts 13 as he preached in the synagogue in Antioch. There he said this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, 
today I have begotten you. The writer of Hebrews called Jesus the anointed son of Psalm 2 who represents God on earth. Quoting Psalm 2, Hebrews 1 says this about Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The passage then quotes Psalm 2.2. Speaking of Jesus' uniqueness, Paul then says, "For For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Quoting Psalm 2. Jesus Himself said He was the Son who would receive the inheritance of peoples from God as described in Psalm 2.8. Listen how he prays in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have, a given, have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus is the one who inherits the peoples that God gives. Finally, John describes Jesus as the warrior, king, and judge of the nations, as noted in Psalm 2. In Revelation 19, he writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, 
we know that Jesus is this warrior king. He is the anointed one of Psalm 2. And do you, and do you know what the Hebrew word in Psalm 2 for anointed is? Mashiach, Messiah. That's the word that says his anointed one, the Mashiach. In Greek, the word is translated Christos or Christ. Jesus is the anointed king of Psalm 2. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the only begotten by the Father. He is God's Son. Jesus is the one who perfectly represents God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He's become Emmanuel, God with us. The one prophesied here to be set on Zion. And later by Isaiah, He's the Son born of a virgin, made into the likeness of men. Jesus will return as the warrior king to judge the world. This is powerful. Psalm 2 is where the Israelites, the Jews, and the New Testament understand the Messiah. When they read this, they knew it was read for kings, but they realized that's not enough. This is going way beyond that. From this chapter, they began to look forward to one coming, the Messiah. And then Jesus comes. So where does this leave us? And this brings us to the final question and our last point. Knowing that we've made God our enemy and knowing that Jesus is this holy warrior judge, what are we to do? How do rebels relate to a holy king? Where can we find refuge from the wrath that we deserve, from the wrath of God, which cannot be stopped, and from the one who is set to judge us? This is where the last question, the last three verses are so powerful. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, it's kind of saying, in light of all this, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. After the sobering realities presented earlier in Psalm 2, our, our raging rebellion against God, God's absolute holiness that must confront that rebellion and foolishness, this anointed son who is a warrior king 
with the power and right to judge and dash us to pieces with His rod of iron, how surprising then the way that Psalm 2 ends. It provides both a warning and an offer, a remedy to our terrible choices and the predicament we're in. First, the warning. It may not sound like a warning, but it is. It says, kiss the sun. This could be a kiss of affection, but that's not so much what it's saying here. Kissing the sun means submit to him. When, when people would, would come to the king, sometimes they would kiss the ring, right? It's like you're, you're showing subservience. You're showing submission. You're showing, I recognize who you are. That's what it's saying here. Kissing the sun means submitting to him. And it says to approach with fear in verse 11. This is a fear, as Tremper Longman notes in his commentary, that understands that God is the center of all existence, all power, and that all human beings, even kings who are powerful on a human level, are not. We're just not that much. Rather, we are dependent on God for everything. That's what kissing the sun means. It says it's wise to submit to the sun, knowing that angering Him can lead to your destruction, as noted in verse 12. After that sober warning, the last line of the psalm provides an amazing offer. It says, take refuge in Him. This is a gracious invitation to be shielded from God's wrath by finding shelter in the sun. How is this possible? How can the judge also be the one who provides refuge? It's possible because God is full of grace and desires to reconcile people to Himself. He chose, and in His nature, He is both just and merciful. And he did this by having his righteous son pay for the sins of the unrighteous. This mighty king, this anointed one set on the hill of Zion, died on the hill for us. That's why Jesus came. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21 describes this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of 
of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. It's in Him that we are righteousness, find righteousness. In Him we're forgiven. Though we turn from Him and deserve His opposition and wrath, and though He will come again and will dash the nations for those who are not in Him, Jesus came in mercy and grace so that you can be right with God. In a world full of trouble, among humanity raging against God, there is one way to be safe, to be sheltered, to find peace. And because of the love of Jesus, because the King, the perfect one, the all-powerful one, the judge, chose to die on a cross on the hill in Zion, we can take refuge in Him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you can be freed from the raging. The raging outside, all around in this world, the raging in your soul. In Jesus, all of your sins were taken on the cross and can be forgiven when you come to Him. In Him, you can have refuge. You can be safe from the penalty our opposition to God deserves. Because of Jesus, you can know love. You can be at peace with God now and forever. And you can be at rest in the midst, even in the midst of this chaotic world. So all of us here who know Jesus would say with Paul, as he said in Corinthians, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You can take refuge in Him today. Let's pray. Father, how amazing that even though we turn from You, You desire to reconcile people to Yourself. Though we hated You, opposed You, maligned You, turned away from You, You reached out to us in love. You sent Your only Son to make a way so that we can be forgiven. Jesus, thank You for choosing to come for us. How amazing that You would leave heaven, You would take on flesh, that You would be willing to be rejected, beaten, crucified, all to pay for our sins. You are our King, You are our faithful older brother, our Lord, our Savior, 
we will forever love you and bow before you, thanking you for your mercy toward us. Amen.